My wife, Gloria, and I, sometimes when we want to watch TV together, have a hard time finding things that we would both want to watch, and so it's kind of become our habit lately that we will search through Netflix and see if we can't find some little mini-series or old television series that we can agree upon, and then every time we get together to watch TV, we'll just kind of watch the next episode in the series. Uh, one of the places we've often turned to find one of those series, because it's or series we haven't seen before, is often to those produced by the British Broadcasting Company, the BBC. One we recently started watching was one called Collision. And it's a six or seven part series, I think, and, and it starts out, the, the kind of premise of this story is that a bunch of cars on a British highway get in an accident. There's a pile up of six or seven cars. And so we're told that, you know, this accident's happened, and as the story develops, you see that um, it's going to be about the investigation of this accident. And I'm starting to think, I'm wanting to watch six or seven episodes of investigation of an accident, car accident. Don't think so. But I stuck with it a little while, kind of got to go someplace. And as the story developed, it turns out that um, one of the people involved in the accident was being chased by police at the time, and that one of the people in that car died, and because of that, the police are being sued by the family of that person. And now the police not only have to investigate the accident, but they have to try and figure out the cause. Were they responsible for it? Who was responsible for it? So they really have to dig into the stories to figure out what was going on that led to this accident happening, how were those people there? And that's really the story. The story isn't so much the accident, but let's look through the lives of each of these people. What brought them to this place? How were they involved and how did this accident occur? And as they walk through the stories of each of the people, one of the things that you start seeing is this, this story about this collision where all of their lives came together in this one event uh, is really a story about a lot of lives that were in some ways on a collision path. That all of their lives in some ways were heading in some tragic directions or problematic directions long before they came together in this literal accident with their cars. So it's about collision, but it's also about kind of people's lives that are on collision paths. And, and the writers of this story also occasionally kind of point out that if one little thing had changed, one little different choice each of them had made, then their life would probably have headed in different directions. Not only would they have avoided this car crash, but they also would have avoided many of the other dangerous things that they were headed towards. One small choice is all it would have taken to shift directions. I thought of that story as I started studying uh, the book of Exodus and looking at the life of Moses. As you know, we're kind of doing a series this semester where we're looking at ancient characters and thinking about modern applications, and Moses is the one I've been assigned to take a look at, the beginning of Moses' story. So if you want to, you can turn to Exodus chapter 1. We're going to start there. The beginning of his story. Because what struck me is, as you talk about Moses, for most people, certain things come to mind when you talk about Moses. Now, for a lot of you, if you're a little older, my age bracket or older, then probably this is what comes to mind. Yeah, Charlton Heston. But that's not actually Moses, for those of you that don't know that. Um, but story that tells something about the life of Moses. 
and if you think even if you're making a movie, which stories are you going to pull out and which are you going to focus on? Which, which are the stories we hear again and again when we think about Moses? Well, there are these kind of dramatic stories that often it seems like that's the place where God stepped into the story. That's the place where God was active and God did something. So maybe we think of like the story of the ten plagues where God, God steps in and he causes the, the king of Egypt to finally uh, give in and release the people of Israel. Maybe we think about the parting of the Red Sea where the people of Israel walk across on dry ground and then those waters come crashing back in on Pharaoh's army. Maybe we think about um, Moses standing before the burning bush in that miraculous place where God intervenes and he's given the law. Maybe we think about those big events because that's the place where God showed up. That's the place where God was active and God was doing something in the story. But I think in this story, too, we're reminded if you look back, God was active long before those events. God was active in some, very, some events that probably nobody noticed. Nobody gave a second thought. And God was there, he was active, he was telling a good story, and he was moving a good direction. Sometimes in ways that nobody who was actually there at the time would have thought about God being in that. Matter of fact, the story of Exodus, the book of Exodus, I want to remind you that it's not, a, it's not the beginning of a new story. This is just a continuation of a story. It isn't suddenly this starts. Matter of fact, it doesn't, you don't see it in our modern translations, but actually in the Hebrew text, the first word in the, the text of the book of Exodus is the word and. And. The story just continues. What's been happening in Genesis, and now we step into the next chapter of this same story that goes on and goes on. And we see that in some other ways in the beginning of the book of Exodus. The next six words in the book of Exodus are the exact same words as in Genesis 46.8. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who were traveling to Egypt. Kind of connects us back. This isn't a brand new story. This is a continuation of a story that's already been being told. Matter of fact, early in book of Exodus again we're kind of we hear creation language the same language we heard again and again in the book of Genesis we hear at the beginning of the book of Exodus the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong we see that same kind of language in Genesis 1 and Genesis 8 and Genesis 9 that same language if God was doing something he had called he created his good creation in his people that he created he tells them he tells Adam and Eve be fruitful and multiply and that they were to have dominion over his creation to rule over it and that that phrase have dominion over doesn't so much mean control as it means again oppose forces that would come against it have dominion over it's carry out God's rule reinforce it support it that's what they were called to do and we see that they fail but then God comes to Abraham and what does he tell to Abraham again now I'm going to create a great people through you. A great nation is going to grow through you. And this great nation is going to bless the rest of the world. So what's God going to do? You can't stop God's plan. God says, okay, looks like Satan's winning, looks like evil's winning. Nope. Uh, Abraham, through you, I'm going to grow a great people. Fill and multiply. And through you, I'm going to accomplish my purposes. You will have dominion. That I'm still going to carry out this plan. Nothing's really going to stop it. And we see as we go on in Genesis the ways, many ways in which God does this, continues to do this. 
We see it, for instance, through the story of Joseph that comes right before Exodus. And we see in the story of Joseph where in this way that nobody expected, this person nobody would have thought would be the, the deliverer of the nation of Israel, this Joseph, this one who's brought as a slave into Egypt, gets raised up to a position of power in such a position of power that he's in just the right place at just the right time, that when God's people needed saved from a great famine, guess where they got to go? Joseph brought them all down to Egypt, where they flourished, where they continued to grow, where they continued to be provided for. And the story goes on in Exodus. So in Exodus, and a new king comes up in Egypt, a new pharaoh. And he could care less who Joseph was, doesn't even know who Joseph was. And this new king, he takes a look at the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, and he says, there are a lot of them. What in the world are they all doing here, flourishing in our country, in our land? You know what? They're not us. As a matter of fact, they're growing so powerful that if they wanted to, they could join with one of our neighboring enemies, and they could, from the inside, turn against us. They could overpower us. Don't think that's a good idea. So Pharaoh makes a plan. What, what seems like a reasonable plan? I don't want them to be so powerful in my own country. I want to diminish their numbers. I want to take away some of their power. Sure don't want them to be a place of dominion. I want to shrink their power and shrink their numbers somehow. That's what I'm going to do. Makes sense when he looks at them. What Pharaoh's not paying attention to and what Pharaoh doesn't realize, he's not just standing against them. He's actually standing against the promise of God. What did God promise Abraham? I am going to grow a great people from you and through you and a great nation that will bless the rest of the world. Pharaoh, try and stop them if you want, but you're not just trying to stop them. You're trying to stop their God. Looks like you can defeat them, but you're actually choosing to stand in front of and try and be an obstacle to God. That's a whole different thing. So Pharaoh sets out on trying to accomplish his plan. And first strategy is, I'll make them all slaves. Not only will I make them slaves, I'll make them slaves where I'm going to work them, Scripture says, ruthlessly. They oppress them in horrible, horrible ways. Building a couple of cities in Egypt, they're, they're the ones who produce the bricks. And we're told it was dirty, repetitious, miserable work that they every day had to do. And they were given a huge quota that they had to meet. So that it was such a burden to them. And I'm sure the thought was, if I put them under this huge burden, then, then this is all they can put their time into and think about. The last thing you want is more kids to take care of. The last thing you want is your family to grow. You've got to carry this burden. Matter of fact, you're going to be in poverty. You don't want more kids. And I'm sure from Pharaoh's point of view, which was common in many places in the ancient world, one of the ways that they handled poverty, one of the ways that they handled the burden that children sometimes were, they killed them. Infanticide was very common in the ancient world, probably much more common today than most of us want to admit, but very common in the ancient world. It was a way of handling that burden. So I'm sure Pharaoh's plans, if I can put enough oppression on them, a big enough burden on them, their numbers will shrink, their power will diminish. I don't have to worry about them anymore. They'll start killing their own, right? But look on down at what actually happens in uh, Exodus chapter 1 and verse 12. What absolutely doesn't make sense. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. The exact opposite of what makes sense happened. More of a burden, more oppression, 
the weight is so heavy on you, and you're actually having more children instead of less children. It just simply doesn't make sense. Strategy number one not working so well. Let's move on to strategy number two. So now Pharaoh calls for a couple, forth a couple of the midwives, Hebrew midwives. Thinks from within. We'll conquer them from within. We'll call a couple of these women forward. These midwives who are involved in the birth of these children. We'll tell them, you know what? Uh, whenever a boy child is born, need to get rid of that child. We're not going to have any more of these boys born. If you look in verse 15, it says, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that baby as a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Again, fantasy was actually pretty common in the ancient world, but what wasn't common was killing off all the boys. They often were killing off the girls in many ways because they believed girls were more of an economic burden. That in many ways in raising girls, some cultures, they had a dowry attached to them that they would have to give when they got married. Some they got a bride price back, but some they had a dowry. But also, when they got married, they would go off and they would further the expansion of, this, of the husband's family. They served there. So I'm sending them off to help someone else's family grow and become stronger. It's not serving me. So often, if they were going to get rid of somebody, it was the girls. Well, I'm sure some of this, again, is in Pharaoh's plan. You know what? You know who's going to be easier? If we want to diminish their numbers and their power, you know what we do? Let's keep the girls because they're a whole lot easier to assimilate into us. Egyptian men marry them, take them on as concubines. They become us eventually. They lose their identity as a people. In a sense, we absorb them into the Egyptian culture. Boys, not so easy to do. So let's just kill off all the boys. So calls forth these two Hebrew midwives. And the assumption is here that it wasn't just two midwives who were handling all the births for every woman in Israel, a nation of Israel. So probably they were representative of, over in some way, supervisors of midwives. But they're the two called forth and told that this is what midwives now need to do. You need to kill all the baby boys when they're born. Well, here we have a very clear act of civil disobedience. They lied. They, they did not do what Pharaoh told them to do, and they acted like they were doing it. But all the boys were allowed to live. In fact, Pharaoh eventually finds out. Lots of little Hebrew boys around. Something's going wrong. Pharaoh comes to him, confronts him, and in verse 19, here's their response. Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. What can we do? They're popping out babies everywhere. We can't do a thing about it. They don't even wait for us, you know? And the, and the most miraculous thing is somehow it seems Pharaoh accepts this. He accepts this line. In fact, it says that God was kind to them. God blessed them. And so I think God protected them. That even in the face of this lie, they were blessed in the face of it. And then you hear the result again down in verse 20. The people increased and became even more numerous. Once again, think you're going to slow them down, diminish their numbers? They grew even bigger. Matter of fact, the kind of cool thing in the story is these two Hebrew midwives who you were going to use to accomplish your purposes, guess what? God blessed them and they gave birth. They, they were part of the multiplication now. No matter what you do, Pharaoh... God is in this, and God is behind it, and his purpose will move forward. Try as you may. God will use the very tools that you're trying to use to, accomplish, to stop him, and God will use those very same things to accomplish his purposes again and again. Matter of fact, 
you think that the women are the ones who are easier to assimilate. You think if you can just get rid of the Hebrew guys, the women will be the ones who you can use to carry forth your plan, assimilate into Egyptian culture. Look at the story here in Exodus 1 and 2. Who are the people God uses in this story? The women. He uses a couple of Hebrew midwives. He's going to use this Hebrew mother and going to use her daughter. Again and again, he comes back and says, okay, you think you got control over the women? I don't think so. They're going to be the soldiers in my battle. They're the ones who are going to further my purpose. So that doesn't work. So, so far we got God 2, Pharaoh 0. So Pharaoh's got to try a new plan. So here's the new strategy. I've tried to kind of sneak in and kill the babies. I've tried to make it so hard on you, you kill your own. We're done with this. Let's just be upfront about it. Kill Hebrew babies. All of you, Egyptians, Hebrews, you're all ordered. Kill the baby boys when they're born. You have to throw them all into the Nile. This is going to be a public thing. We're going to see you do it. It has to be done. If they won't throw them into the Nile, you pick them up and throw them into the Nile because we are not going to let them continue to multiply. And then in chapter 2, we start this story. Going to get rid of all the baby boys? Well, what happens? Mother looked Mother, uh, a Hebrew mother, at this point unnamed, later in the book of Exodus she's named, but at this point this unnamed Hebrew mother, we're just told she's of priestly heritage, she gives birth to a little boy. And we're told she looks at this little boy and in her eyes he's fine, which is kind of a strange thing to say. It's almost like saying, well, if he wasn't fine, I'd toss him in the Nile, but he happens to be fine, child, you know? Some of us would be in the Nile, some of us would stay out, right? Uh, but the word fine there really is, could be also equally translated good. Matter of fact, it, it may be that what's being said here is she looked just as God looked at his creation and God says over it, it's good. She looks at her son and she says over him, he's good. She is joining God instead of joining Pharaoh. And later in Acts 7 when this story is recounted, in Hebrews 11 when it's recounted, uh, we're given extra information, and part of the information tells us that she looked at him and she realized he was no ordinary child. So not only I think she's saying he's good-looking or something, she's actually saying somehow God's revealed to her that this child has a purpose in his plan. This is no ordinary child. God is doing something here. So in her saving this child, not only is she doing what any mother, of course, would want to do, but she's also trying to join God in his good plans and serve his purposes by saving this child. So for three months, she hides the child. And anyone who's raised a little boy knows it's going to get harder and harder to hide a little boy. Um, getting harder for him not to be seen. And so eventually she realizes she's going to have to do something else. And so she comes up with this great little plan. Again, I think another act of civil disobedience, but it's a real creative one. Because in a sense, she follows the letter of the law. She puts the baby in the Nile. Not the intent of the law, not the spirit of the law, but she, she does what she's supposed to. She puts the baby in the Nile. And whenever you see this depiction nowadays, it, you know, in some cartoon or something, it, it, it's, you know, this, this little floating bassinet bobbing down the rapids of the Nile. But that's not really what the story says. What it says is she created this, this she took this basket, and she kind of created a little boat out of it, again, a little floating bassinet. Um, and, and she put it, had it put along the edge of the Nile, along the shores, in the reeds. She put it in a very specific place. And then her daughter, who's older, stands off in a distance, and she watches. 
but not, I just threw it down the river. It's, I put it in a place and I watch. And I wonder, I think it's a reasonable thing to guess, that maybe she knew what goes on in that part of the river. Maybe she knew who regularly comes down here. Because then we're told that one of the daughters of Pharaoh comes down with her attendants to bathe in the Nile River in this place. Now you think, the daughter of Pharaoh. But the reality is, Pharaoh would have probably had many, many wives, many concubines. He may have had dozens or even hundreds of children. Um, so being a daughter of Pharaoh was a prestigious thing, but he may not even have known her name. He may never even had contact with her because he probably had many children. But nonetheless, she is someone that has power, that has privilege because she's a daughter of Pharaoh. So one of these daughters of Pharaoh comes down to this place. Maybe it's where many of the daughters of Pharaoh bathe. And the sister standing by watching. And the baby begins to cry. Pharaoh's daughter asks for Moses to be brought to her. Not named Moses at this point, but the baby to be brought to her. And she sees him crying, and she feels sorry for him. She has empathy. Again, a miracle, but maybe also part of their plan. Boy, a whole lot harder to throw that real baby that you're looking in the face of into the Nile than it is to just say, yeah, you guys all go do it. Now you, you who have some power, you look into the face of that baby. Now are, now are you willing to carry out your father's command? And she's not. She feels empathy for that child, cares about it. And the sister who's been standing by watching sees her moment and jumps in. Because if you're like me, when you have a crying baby in your hand, you look for someone to hand it to. You know? And the princess is going, uh, crying baby, don't know what to do with it. And sister runs up and says, would you like me to find one of the Hebrew women? They realize the Hebrew baby, so you want me to find one of the Hebrew women to nurse it? Sure. She runs off, and guess who she happens to find? Her mom. And her mom she brings back, and her mom takes the baby and nurses the baby. And the really cool thing is that the princess now pays her to nurse this baby. So think about this story. Women, they'll be easier. We'll assimilate them in, don't have to worry about them. God uses the women to thwart his plans. God uses a woman from his very own household. In fact, in some ways she had power, but in some ways within Pharaoh's household, she was probably powerless in ways compared to others in his household. Uses that person from his very own household to, again, thwart his plans, to begin carrying out his plans. Not only that, takes money from Pharaoh's treasury and actually uses it to pay for the care of this one who would one day deliver the people of Israel from his control and would even destroy his armies and bring Egypt to their knees. This, this person, from within his own home, through his own money, is now being raised up. God three, Pharaoh zero. He's not doing so well. Matter of fact, you want to kill the boys? A baby boy is the one who's going to defeat you. He's going to, going to lead his people to victory. It seems like God is wanting to say in every possible way, I am the one doing this. Doesn't make sense. Not the way you would do it. It's not the way you expect God to work from your point of view. I'm the one doing this. There is absolutely nothing that can stop my movement. He is the ruler over everything. He is the ruler over his creation, which means over every being. And when God wants to accomplish his purposes and keep his promise, nothing will stop him from doing so. Absolutely nothing. You know, later in the New Testament, there's a situation that the Apostle Paul walks into in the church of Corinth. 
where he's speaking to them, and they seem to be saying, you know, um, they're expecting God to work through those who have a lot of human wisdom or those who have human power. That if God's going to raise up a leader or God's going to be involved in a movement, that's how God's going to do it. He's going to do it in ways that, of course, we would recognize God's in that because look at their wisdom. Look at their power. Look at the power of that movement. And as, as Paul writes to this group, he reminds them of, again, is that really how God works? Is that his story? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26, these familiar words. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the wor world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If we put on the lenses of Scripture and we look around our world, we look through the lens of these stories we would see differently God's activity and movement. Matter of fact, we would be probably be looking in different places for what God's doing. Without the lens of Scripture, it makes sense. Of course God was there in the parting of the Red Sea. Of course God is there in the miraculous. But when I put on the lens of Scripture, I can start seeing, you know what? God is active and present and loving and carrying out his purposes in so many other remarkable, miraculous ways that I never even considered. Looking back helps us in some ways understand our present moment. But I also love that in this story we're reminded that God also gave glimpses of what he's going to be doing. Not just he connected it to what he has done and lets you know this is a continuing story, but he lets you know this story is going to go on. This story is going someplace. Matter of fact, you, you kind of get a little glimpse of that in the naming of this baby. That again, the baby's taken back and raised by his mother for a period of time, which is interesting. Because Moses, if Moses is going to be raised up to be a leader of the Hebrew people, Moses was raised in this Hebrew home in his early years. He was cared for, I'm sure trained. Matter of fact, seems the mother knew that God had a special purpose for this child. I'm sure in raising him, she was preparing him for that special purpose. But then we're also told that he's given eventually to Pharaoh's daughter and raised in her home with all the privileges that came in her home. Later in Acts 7, we're reminded of the fact that, that Moses was raised with the best possible education in the world at that time. He grew up through the Egyptian training system to be one who was wise in speech, one who was well-learned. They empowered him to be a good leader. And if we look on in the story, we go on in Exodus chapter 2 and 3 and on, we'll see that Moses, God kind of prepared him through some other things that may not look like leadership training. That even as he tries to defend his people, guess what do they do? They reject him. Moses has to learn how to handle that. Moses goes out into the wilderness and the desert and has to be a shepherd out there and has to learn how to live and survive out there. Some good skills for him with what's coming ahead. God's doing leadership training, and probably Moses doesn't even understand it all. But again, a glimpse we see of the future is even in the naming of this baby. Because this Egyptian princess takes this baby and looks at him and chooses a name. And we're told she chooses the name Moses. And, and then she kind of explains, says, because I drew him out of the water. So what's that mean? Well, in Hebrew, the name Moses is very similar to a word that means to draw out. So maybe that's why she, what she's saying. 
I drew him out, and so I'm going to name him Moses. But remember, she's Egyptian. But she did recognize this was a Hebrew child, so maybe she's giving a name that, again, represents the fact this is a Hebrew child. But she's also wanting to hide this. She doesn't want everybody to know this is the Hebrew child she's raising and going against her father. So this, this same name, Moses, actually is very similar to a word in the Egyptian language that means born or born of. And it was a very common name. They would attach that name, what we're translating as Moses, to another name. So born of Ramesses, born of somebody. And it was a very common part of a name. So it's interesting. She even gives a name that to the Egyptian, it's another name. But to the Hebrew reader, then and even now, as we look back at the story, she's telling something more than that. This is the one that I drew out of the water. This is the one that God drew out of the water that were meant to kill him. And what's going to happen as the story goes on? The waters are going to be parted, and the people of Israel are going to walk through on dry ground, and the armies of Pharaoh are going to be defeated by that water. You were meant to use the waters to kill. Those waters become a path to deliverance and safety. You are meant those to further your purposes. They are the way God crushed you. God three, four, five, six, Pharaoh zero. You just can't stop God's purposes from moving ahead. As I think, as I was, again, reading this story and kind of thinking about this series I had just watched, one of the things that struck me was, as you look in the Bible, you see that again and again, that there's these stories where they come together and these points where it just stands out. Something's happening. God's in that. God, in this case, not a collision path, not a tragedy, but this is a journey towards God's good purposes. God is accomplishing his good purposes long before we ever notice, but there are moments we see it. We know he's at work and he's doing that, but step back from him. You see him again and again. There are many threads of that that are all coming together, and they, we kind of get exposed in these points, but if you even stand back further from that, what you realize is all of these Old Testament characters are, we're talking about, all of these stories these stories, these stories of deliverance, of redemption, of God working in these remarkable, unique ways, they all point to a collision point too, don't they? This, this little infant who looks like that is not a significant person, that person doesn't matter, God is going to raise up to be a deliverer. That story, just like so many other stories throughout Scripture, point to a collision point where all those stories make sense. They matter in their historic moment. But they also point to something in the future. I was just recently on YouTube, where we all learn everything, as Bob said. Uh, I was on YouTube and saw this little clip from uh, Tim Keller. It was a speech he gave. And Tim Keller is a pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. But he gave this speech, and someone had taken a little portion of that speech, and they attached some pictures to it and kind of made a little video out of it that I thought was just uh, well worth watching. So I'm going to show it to you, and he kind of talks about that very point. What is the Bible really about? Is the Bible basically about me and what I must do? Or is it basically about Jesus and what he has done? When you read in Luke and Acts how Jesus in those 40 days uh, got his disciples together 40 days before he ascended after he was raised what was he doing 
basically he was saying everything in the Old Testament is about me. He says the reason you didn't understand what I was about was you didn't realize that everything in the prophets and the Psalms and the law was pointing to me. Do you believe the Bible is basically about you or basically about him? Is David and Goliath basically about you and how you can be like David and Goliath or basically about him, the one who really took on the, mate, the only giants that can really kill us? And so his victory is imputed to us. Who's it really about? That's the fundamental question. And when that happens, then you start to read the Bible new, you know. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the, into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. While God said to Abraham, now I know you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, He's the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life. Who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them, to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's the real Passover lamb. He's, he's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. Do you think that the Hebrew people in the story in Exodus 1 and 2, in that moment, in that time, do you think they looked around them at what was going on and they thought, God is active, God is present, God is doing something important. We're under horrible oppression. Our children are being murdered. Do you think they looked around and said, God's here? Or do you think they thought, we're all alone? Paul wrote in Romans, and, and here we're clearly told that he's writing into a situation where he's writing to people who've been suffering a lot, going through some pretty difficult things. And he, and he and we, if you've been in the church at all, you've heard this passage before from Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So he's speaking to people who right now are suffering, who many times are suffering because we're trying to follow God, and it's causing great suffering in our life. And yet he says those words, God works for good, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
He's working for our good. He's telling a good story. But that good story doesn't mean that everything goes well all the time, that there's never suffering or never difficulty. I love the way Eugene Peterson says this in a book that he wrote about the Psalms of Ascents. It's a one little paragraph. Listen, I read. He says, The Christian life is not a quiet escape to a garden where we walk and talk uninterruptedly with our Lord, nor a fantasy trip to a heavenly city where we can compare blue ribbons and gold medals with others who have made it to the winner's circle. The Christian life is going to God. In going to God, Christians travel the same ground that everyone else walks on, breathe the same air. The difference is that each step we walk, each breath we breathe, we know we are preserved by God. We know we are accompanied by God. We know we are ruled by God. And therefore, no matter what doubts we endure, what accidents we experience, the Lord will preserve us from evil. He will keep our life. Paul goes on to talk about the things like we will experience death. We will walk through it. But death will no longer have victory over us. We will experience suffering and pain and difficulty and injustice in a world that is not as it should be. We will feel the effects of evil. But evil will no longer have victory over us. We will fail. We will do things wrong. We will struggle. But no one can remove us from the hand of our God because he's more powerful than any of them. We're still in this world. Suffering still happens. But if we put on the lenses of Scripture and we start looking through these stories, maybe we start looking differently at the world around us, searching for God's presence and God's activity in places and in ways and through people that we just haven't really been paying attention to because we haven't been listening to his revelation of himself. This is how he works. This is who he is, and this is how he will carry out his good plan. He's done it in the past. He will do it in the future, and he already has won his victory. That's the story. So application real quick. A few. One I've already said you. Look for God in places maybe you haven't looked for him. Put on the lenses of Scripture as you try to understand what God's doing. Secondly, maybe it's good to say in an election year, probably good to say any time, especially in an election year, this story reminds us God is ruler over his creation. He is. God's in charge. Now, I absolutely believe we ought to be responsible citizens. We ought to do the best we can with every opportunity we have to further God's purposes and to serve his kingdom, even within political systems and everything else. We ought to use the opportunities the best we can. But if we think about this story, it reminds us that whichever new king, new pharaoh is in place, it doesn't stop God. It doesn't change his ability to work out his good plan. Matter of fact, he doesn't even have to go around him. He will use them and go through them to accomplish his good plan. It's why we sometimes can submit to those and pull for and be respectful towards those that we even disagree with, that we don't even like some things they're doing. Because ultimately, you know, we're submitting to the God who is even over them, who is allowing them to even be in that place of authority. It takes some of the pressure off. We can live because we can live in all these situations because we know ultimately. God's still in control, and he's still ruler. But on the flip side, we also see in this story, there were times for civil disobedience. There were times they resisted the authorities over them and said no to them, lied and even went around them. There were times to do that. They were pretty creative in how they did it, but they did it. Because again, why did they do it? Because ultimately God is ruler over all. So sometimes recognizing that means we have to say no. Because you're asking me to go directly against what I know my God's calling me to do in the direction he's calling me to go. 
that is a confusing thing to discern, isn't it? When do we submit and in so doing say we are submitting to the ultimate authority of our God? When do we resist and so doing say because we are resisting to submit to the ultimate authority of our God who's ruler over all? That's tough. And I'm not going to answer that question because I don't have time. Not sure I could anyways, but I know I don't have time. What I will say is, I think it's why God puts us in a community. I think those are discussions we need to have together. When we hit those confusing places, those places it's not clear, that's when we ought to be talking within the body of Christ, within community, and trying to discern those decisions and hear, hear God's voice that he often gives to us through the community of believers. But what it does say is, God is ultimately ruler over all. Finally, if you think your part in the story is insignificant, you think it doesn't matter because you don't stand out, because you don't have the gifts or skills that everybody recognizes as being powerful and influential, this story reminds us that really isn't what God needs. As a matter of fact, he seems to actually love working through the unexpected, through the things that this world and the people that this world would call insignificant. seems to be one of his favorite methods is to do great things through those people. And great things aren't always recognized as great things, even by the people doing them. What God needs from us is simply that when we see God's doing something, we join it. We join it with whatever we have to join it with. We simply seek the best we can to trust and obey and go where he's going. God will decide how great the impact is of that. That's what he needs from us. You think your part in the story doesn't matter? I think Exodus 1 and 2 says otherwise. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the fact that you have blessed us by revealing yourself to us. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand what you're doing, to see what you have done, to see what you are doing, to hear from your word and through your spirit what you will do. And Father, I pray that you would help us to discern well, wisely, and accurately our part as a church and as individuals in that bigger story. We do thank you that ultimately this is all in your hands. Father, that even when we fail, even when we fail to discern, that your good purposes move forward and that your good purposes include your incredible love towards us. In your blessed name, amen.